it's a direct result. So I say that my transness is a spiritual experience. I, if I wasn't seeking God or some sort of spiritual connection, I wouldn't be able to call myself Bonnie Violet, and I wouldn't be asking you to do the same. That was Bonnie Violet, my guest for this episode of Left-Handed Journeys. Just a warning, we will talk about the death of a child in this episode. If it's too triggering for you, I suggest checking out a different episode. Today I'm talking to Bonnie Violet, a trans femme, genderqueer, spiritual drag artist, and digital chaplain, YouTuber, Twitcher, and host of a queer chaplain podcast with such series as Drag and Spirituality, Trans Spirit, and Faith Leaders. Co-host of Splintered Grace with her conservative Christian aunt and at the CCC Recovery Podcast. Bonnie Violet shares her experience of strength and hope with HIV, recovering from drugs, alcohol, and sexual assault, among other things in classrooms, community centers, churches, online, and pretty much anywhere they'll let her. As a queer chaplain, she is present with people in death and dying to self by helping to lace one's narrative with a spiritual thread to remind one of their resilience, strengthen faith in self, and create serenity in the now. Connect with her on Instagram at a queer chaplain. So, so Bonnie and I met when we were both living in Chicago, attending a church. Well, I, I don't know. I was sporadically attending a church. I don't know about you. <laughs> and yeah. uh, we met right before Bonnie started going, moved out to California. But I'm just going to start by saying that it was so reaffirming to talk to somebody for whom that was sex positive and saw sexuality as a part of her spiritual growth that as soon as I started thinking about this podcast, Bonnie was one of the first people that I thought of. So I'm super excited to be talking to mm. you again. It's been a while. Um, so if you don't mind, so start just by telling us about your spiritual roots. Where did you start? Awesome. Um, yeah, I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. I feel like it's been way too long. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, my I didn't grow up in a house with a family that went to church or weren't really big on any like religion or anything like that. But I got introduced to Free Methodist Church, Christian Church, when I was like five or six from an aunt. And I loved it. I loved going to church and I got really, really involved as a young person. I, I As like a trans very effeminate little assigned boy at that time. I had a really hard time being at home. My father was constantly telling me how to sit and where to put my hand and how to speak and how to do this or not do that. And I became very uncomfortable in my body and in my expression. And so home wasn't comfortable. School wasn't comfortable. I At school, I had the role of like getting good grades and doing all that stuff because I was like a poor kid that was trying to get out <laughs> of, you know, poverty and all that sort of stuff. And so church was like the place I could go and just like, oh, and just be, I had fun. I was kind of the cool one. You know, I was in the theater performances. So I always got to play like Jesus and God and Joseph and all the like the big roles, I guess, <laughs> um, which was actually kind of a lot of fun for me. And for whatever reason, you know, sex and sexuality wasn't really a part of that environment. And so I was never really like challenged, if you will, um, as far as like whether or not my sexuality or my gender really fit in the space, um, especially as a young person. I just was not super sexualized or anything like that. So I brought myself up in church, but my family really weren't. They, I was kind of queer in the fact that I went to church with my family. That was mostly high school? Or so that would, yeah, I mean, that would have been like through um, 
through, you know, grade school, middle school, and even into high school. Okay. Um, when I graduated high school, I was able to move out of that little town in Idaho that, that I was living in. I moved out to Phoenix, Arizona. I got involved with like this uh, big mega church doing big theater productions with like pyrotechnics and, you know, all that kind of fun stuff in a non-denom church. And then um, I went to school in a very short period of time to be an architect, an actor, a model, and a preacher. I'm not any of those today, but that was definitely, I think as young people, we often are like trying to find ourselves. And I was definitely in that place, space of exploration um, as a young person. And I loved, I even loved church and all that sort of stuff, even into my college years. But that changed for me when I was diagnosed with HIV. I was infected with HIV when I was 19 years old. I found out just a few months later after I had turned 20. At that point in time, I hadn't identified publicly as, you know, as being at that time a gay man. And uh, it kind of forced me to, uh, I guess, to just kind of like own up to it, partly because I just thought I was going to die of AIDS. And like, I needed to, I felt like I needed to like free myself of, I don't know, like, I don't know, it was a scary time. Um, And that's when I left church. Um, Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like I, that place that had always been my safe place became not a place I could go to with those things. And um, it was a very huge loss. I was not only going through the trauma and the scariness of becoming a, you know, faggot with AIDS, but I also, then I didn't have access to God and I didn't have access to the church and the people in church that had been so important, uh, such an important place for me to land in much of my life. And that's when I made the very conscious decision to start using drugs and alcohol, in particular ecstasy. And uh, it was a great substitute for a while, to be honest. Like it, drugs and alcohol afforded me a life that I wasn't able to achieve on my own. Um, it softened the blow of life and it helped me to not be so scared of the what life I maybe had left, you know? Um, I also was dealing with a lot of shame around all that. The fact that I found myself in that position, I thought I was smart enough. I thought I loved Jesus enough. I thought, you know, like all these sorts of things, I'm not one of those people to make a decision to get HIV. Before you were publicly identifying as, as a gay person and you were attending mm-hmm. church, like, did you feel like you were living two separate lives? Like, what did that feel like? Well, so I, um, I hadn't really, so I had had like experiences, um, I think growing up in kind of this spiritual church, like environment, I think I felt like I maybe had moments of like some sort of like demon in me or something. Like there was something that kind of took over me when I was 16 years old and let an older man go down on me out in a field, you know, or that um, the first time I had, had ended up having sex with a man and I was super, super excited. I bought these new clothes and we had met over this phone line. That's how old I am. You met people over like a, a phone chat line. And I went and I met with him and we had like a really great time and it was awesome. But as soon as I left, I went home and I burned everything that had anything to do with that experience. Cause I felt like I had been like temporarily like taken over by something that was evil or dark or, you know, something like that. And now I would just label it nature, like natural, like, you know, my instinct or whatever, but it just felt so, it felt so right. But Mm -hmm. I had been told 
what I'd been told about it, it just felt so foreign or wrong or outside of me. And that just was not the case. But that at that time, I just didn't know what to do with it. And so I just kind of tried to tuck it away. And then it would kind of come out here, there. And basically, you know, my girlfriend dumped me. I wasn't sleeping with her. And she was like, hey. And I was like, yeah, I don't. Uh, and she's like, well, I'm done. <laughs> and she was really hurt by that. And I really loved her. I really cared about her. But I wasn't sexually like where I wanted to go there. And um, I, I just remember how hurt she was. And I was just like, I cannot do that to another person. Like I need to figure out. And that was like in January of, I was 19. She dumped me in February, I turned 20. And then I was like, okay, girl, you're gay. Figure this out. I got a job at a gay bar to learn how to be gay. And then in May, I was diagnosed with, with, with HIV. And then that just kind of pushed everything, everything forward. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot at once. So drugs work for a while. What happened? What changed? Why did they stop working? Why did they stop working? Yeah. I mean, to some degree, I think maybe the reason why I was using changed. When I quit drinking and using, it was about 10 years after that. I was 29 years old. I was running an HIV and AIDS organization that I had started at the age of 24 it was running really well. I was super, super successful. I had been married to a man and then unmarried to a man. Um, And then I was in another relationship. I was in very prominent positions. I got to travel around the country. And like, in a lot of ways, I was doing this really rad stuff that was so much bigger than me. Like I felt like it was kind of that feeling I had back in church again, like I was doing something for my community. And I I was in the beginning of that, just trying to validate my existence so that I could die with my life had mattering. And uh, by that point, it gotten way beyond that. I was healed. I knew I could be loved and be diseased and, you know, <laughs> all that sort of stuff. But I, but I just was at a place where I couldn't get beyond where I was. And a big part for me was I was failing in relationships by being unfaithful. I couldn't be honest. And then I just felt like I was a shitty child to my mother. <laughs> and I just didn't know how to get any different results than what I was getting. And I thought maybe drinking... I had given up all the drugs by that point, but they, they had honestly, they'd started to kind of sneak in. And I think that was part of it is I just started to kind of feel a little out of control. Like I could have one, two drinks and black out, or I could drink for hours and remember everything. And so it was, I literally just did not know what would happen when I drank. And usually when I drank, I just did things that were, I think when it came down to it, it was what I really wanted to do, but it was the things I didn't it was the things that I couldn't do because I wasn't living my life appropriately. It was like, okay, I'm going to sleep with somebody who's not my committed partner because I want to when, and I'm unwilling to talk to him and say, Hey, this isn't working. And so um, that's what I mean by it was letting me do what I wanted to do, but it was because I wasn't dealing with the things that I needed to be dealing with in a way that I needed to deal with them. And so I got rid of drugs and drinking in order to find a way to not be an asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And, and I also didn't want to lose that nonprofit and everything that was going. I had really felt like it was getting to a point that my lifestyle was potentially going to put that at harm. And, and mm-hmm. I, that would have been a whole nother thing that I wouldn't have been able to, I think, I don't think there would have been enough drugs to pull myself out of that loss. Gotcha. I feel like we're heading towards the birth of queer chaplain. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I guess just fill in like, so you, you give up the drugs and the alcohol and Mm -hmm. obviously now there's a, there's a hole there, right? Yeah. 
And luckily I was able to get into like a spiritual program um, to find, to get away from drugs and alcohol. And um, I, I didn't, I hadn't real, I knew that I was like spiritually unwell, but I don't know that I had the words for that. I didn't believe I could call it that because, you know, I was a, I was a fag. I couldn't, access God in a way that I, you know, I didn't think I was eligible or that I could. And in getting in these recovery spaces, I heard queer folks like myself who talked about a God, they talked about spirituality and it was helping them and it was loving them. And it was, they were living these lives that they had only could dream of and attributed a lot of it to this relationship with God. And that was something that I desperately wanted and I didn't know how to make it work. And so I fought that for a really long time. I was like, I knew I was in the recovery for like the spiritual aspects because there are plenty of ways that we could probably choose not to use drugs and alcohol anymore. But I think I was using them in order to fill this, this hole and this space in which God once had, I don't know, <laughs> I think God was still there, but I, I, I didn't see it, you know? And so um, I just started hanging out in that community enough and came to believe in a God again, not the same God, not the same God I grew up in and, and not a God that I found in church for a really long time. When I met you, that was, you know, I was in Chicago at that time and I landed in a church by accident and I went there one day for, jo- for a job thing and I heard the gay addict preacher <laughs> preach that day. And I just felt like it was just for me. I, I cried and I was on my shift. It wasn't, you know, I wasn't a person in the, in the pews for realsies and I was just bawling. And I found myself there every week for, for months. And I just cried and I cried and I cried and I cried and I healed, you know, and that place allowed me to be, you know, the faggot with AIDS, the, the queer in the booty shorts, serving communion and, I even got to guest preach on uh, sex and sexuality with a fairly conservative pastor. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, it was cool to just be in a space in which the God that I raised was raised with a church like the one I was raised in loved me and celebrated me. And actually even I did well in the space as uh, who I was now. And there was a lot of healing uh, that came through that experience. I wouldn't say I I found Jesus and I became a Christian again. However, I do feel like it did heal me in a way that was really helpful. Yeah. So we're, we're talking about a group of churches called Urban Village, which mm-hmm. I still think has some, some great people in it. And I mean, of course, no organization is going to be perfect, but, but they strive to be very welcoming and inclusive. And I had similar experiences. I was never a member because I wasn't I wasn't ready. I wasn't at a point where I wanted to be a member of a church, but they still let me come speak about BDSM and Mm -hmm. polyamory and Christianity. And I made some amazing friends out of it. So similar experiences. So where did, where did the idea of being the queer chaplain come, come in or come from? Long story, huh? To get there, but we are getting there. No, I like it. Yeah. (laughs) So actually, while I was at that church, I had an experience where, so my nephew, Wyatt Hades, he had, he was born. I went, I'd went home to Idaho. I visited him. I met him. And then I went home and then right around three months, he, he didn't wake up one night and he ended up having, my mom gave him mouth to mouth resuscitation. They got him into an ICU. We're in a little small town. So he got life flighted to another hospital. And long story short, I got rushed to 
from Chicago to Boise, Idaho, as soon as I could to be there with Wyatt. And I remember getting there, getting in the ICU and getting into right in front of his bed there. And at that time, I hadn't really come to, I wasn't sure where I was at with God and like what to do or whatever. But I remember just standing there in front and just being kind of like, I don't know what the best thing in this situation is. It's like, I don't know to pray that he's okay or that he lives. I don't know to pray that he dies. I don't know what to, you know, like I just was like, I don't know. And so I just, I just kind of was able to just give it to God and trust God or hope that something else was in charge, you know, or something like I had no control over the situation and I didn't know what the best result was. And I was the oldest I'm my brother's oldest sibling, you know, I was the uncle, you know, all those sorts of things. And so I was like, you know what, I'm just going to show up. And um, I showed up for my brother and his wife and my nephew. Eventually we did have to um, take him off of machines and, and let him go. And when that happened with babies, often if somebody will hold the baby after they take him off the machines and I offered something in me said, I'll, I'll hold him because my brother and his wife, they just weren't in that position. And I said, well, I'll do it. And my brother's wife actually didn't even want to be in the room or the hospital. So she left completely. And so I was there in the chair. I sat down and my dad was on one side and my brother was on the other side. And they unplugged Wyatt and they put him in my arms and, you know, he, he stopped breathing in my arms. And uh, it was tragic and horrifying and beautiful and special and uh, I remember leaving the ICU after he had passed and uh, leaving him there. His mother had come back. So I gave him to his mother and I remember going out of the ICU and I started to wash my hands because that's what you do. And I remember like wanting to stop at my wrists because I didn't want to wipe up my arms where he was because I didn't like I just felt him in me still and I didn't want to let it go. And I remember I went out to the hallway and I just hugged my arms and felt him close. And I just like that's when I lost it. And that's when I cried. And I showed up for my family continuing after that. My, my brother's new wife was Mormon and it was a new wife. So the two families didn't really know each other. You know, my parents throw a party when somebody dies and, you know, they do like, it's a Mormon temple thing. And so I'm like this queer thing. That's the, the medium in this rural town of like taking care of this beautiful child's, you know, passing and, I ended up holding, like in the Mormon faith, you hold babies. You don't put them in a casket for viewings. You actually have somebody hold them. And so I held Wyatt in my arms and then people get to hold the baby too. And so that I passed him and let other people and I took care of his, you know, thawing body and just, and then did the party thing with my mom. And like, it was just like this moment where I was like, oh my God, I cannot believe I'm doing this stuff because I'm the girl who would not go to a funeral because it's just too much. And I'm literally like holding, you know what I mean? Like I was just blown yeah. away and, and I never felt so close to God. I never felt so selfless. Like I'd never felt so like unafraid that really just kind of opened up this idea of wanting to be present with people and around death and dying. Um, I wasn't in the space of doing that with babies because it's still fairly traumatic for me, honestly, whenever I, it's still just a thing for me. He would have been eight this last year. But through that, basically, then I kind of came up with this idea of being present with people. Like I wanted to do something more to be present with 
queer folks around spirituality. And so Urban Village Church offered the lay chaplaincy program. And so I kind of went through a course there and then kind of evolved into this place where someone labeled me as like a identity doula or a queer chaplain. And it's just, for me, it's around being around death and dying to identity or to self. So it's not maybe our physical death, but it's more of like our mental, spiritual, emotional kind of way of, of death and dying, if you will. And, you know, yeah. and birth, and birth, right? Birth right. is kind of the, what happens after that. That makes so much sense to me because I think when we, we think about becoming our authentic selves and it, it's so hard, <laughs> you know, it's not an easy process. It might be liberating, but it makes sense that there's a, there's a, a dying lot, process that happens yeah, too. A lot has to die. And I think a lot of the times for us queer folks, like we're told we can't access God. We're told that we don't have spirits, that we don't have, like somehow we're soulless or whatever, which is just bullshit, you know, like, it's just not true. It's not real. It's not even real. And so like, I want to help invite people just to bring their spirit into that experience because I went through so many experiences without that conscious connection or actually seeing God or my spirituality or even my own spirit within a certain circumstance. And it just made it a lot more difficult, I think, than it needed to be. And so Mm -hmm. I really want to try to help people invite spirituality into whatever identity change or whatever exploration that they're going through, whether it's difficult, whether it's exciting, um, because I think it'll just help the process, um, regardless of what it is. I feel like this is a good spot to stop the narration for a minute. And I, I want to ask you the, the question that I posed in the email that what encompasses the erotic to you? Mm-hmm. That's something that's changed for me a lot very recently. I started hormones back in April. So it's been like maybe five months now. And since then, it's very different. You know, prior to that, I was very much kind of like, I hate to kind of use this terminology, but I was very much like a guy, you know, like I would you know, I would masturbate every night or pretty often and I would want to, and I would think about it, you know, and things like that. And then I started hormones and I'm like, "Eh, I could go without, like, I'm cool, you know? And like, (laughs) and like at first, you know, like my physicality like changed a bit. And so that was something that I was really surprised about because it's like all of us, because I had gotten to a point where like, I was like, I don't even know why I have a penis in sex. Cause I just never, it never like, I was like, okay, it's there. People wanted to use it. And I was like, I guess fine. But like, you know what I mean? Like it was, some, and I don't have like, a, I didn't ever had like a, a bad feeling about it. I was just kind of like, yeah, it's there. But it was funny once it's starting to change and I'm like, oh, wait, wait a minute. I don't, I don't know if I like that. But what I do like is like my mindset has had kind of changed. I was kind of at a space in which I was kind of discontent um, with my sexual uh, activities and behavior and sexuality and all of that. I just was kind of bored. It wasn't bad. It just was like, mm, I just wanted something more or a variety or different depths, if you will. And so starting hormones just kind of took that away. I don't know if I, I feel like I'm more of like a, I hate say using girl and woman, but I feel like I'm just turned on differently. And what, you know what I mean? Like I'm more into wanting to be more affectionate or more touch or more emotional, I think kind of connection because I still have the sexuality and I still have the sexual energy. It's just very different than prior to hormones. 
So, okay, let's go back. Cause when we were both in Chicago, I think I was dating a lot. I was talking to you about dating mm-hmm. a lot I and was. you gave me a lot of comfort around the fact that you were, you were an extremely sexual person. Mm-hmm. You were also one of the first people that I met that was HIV. You were the only person that I met that was HIV positive that talked about it being okay to be sexual. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm curious, like, first of all, I, I just want to name that, that that was stigmatizing for me in a powerful way, you know, Mm. but also then it sounds like something in that changed. Not that you felt uncomfortable being right. Yeah. But that maybe that, that drive changed for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's been like, I mean, it's been four years, (laughs) so a lot has changed. changed. (laughs) Yeah, no, but yeah, definitely at that time when um, I met you, you know, uh, that would have been, I'm now 23 years with HIV. I probably would have been around 17 to 19 years living with HIV. I had been on treatment for many years. Um, we'd come to understand that um, undetectable means untransmittable. People were on prep. You know, I was in an environment where people were educated and they understood. So I had reached a point to where I could fuck, fuck without fear you know, and that was something that I had never experienced before because I got an HIV the first time I could. And so I never even had a chance to be afraid of getting HIV for one, but then I became extremely, extremely concerned about transmitting it. So sex after that was very difficult for me, even in my marriage and, you know, things like that. And so um, when I met you, I'd come to the point where, you know, I was like three to five, six years sober at that time, I had, you know, again, the knowledge of HIV transmission, and I wasn't afraid of that. And so I felt like in a lot of ways, I was, I was getting to have the queer life of the youth that I never got, because I had always felt robbed. I'd always felt like I didn't get to be that cute little thing at the club to go home or go to parties or do these sorts of things, because I was this toxic, radioactive, diseased thing that wasn't sexy was harmful. And, you know, a lot of the times I just wasn't physically well because of the medication. And I had reached a point where that was not going on for me. And so I was going to bathhouses and I was hooking up with multiple people in a night. And I was, I mean, I was totally enjoying it and I was having fun with it and I might've got syphilis a few times, but that's okay. You know, like, (laughs) and I had never been as close to God either. I'd found a way to invite my spirituality and God into that. And actually, because I was connected with God and connected with spirituality, I was able to invite sex and sexuality into my life again and kind of hold it all at once, which I think is not a super common thing for folks to talk about is like inviting God into your sexuality. But I think once I started doing that, it just became that much better. You know, I felt better about it during and I felt better about it after. And there was no shame. There was no... um, I don't know. It was, it was fine. I mean, I was enjoying it. <laughs> so you, you moved out to California and I think you started getting more involved in, in the drag community there, or it just became more important to you. Yeah. Um, well, just before I left Chicago, I had done an interview with drag. I did my first interview with drag and spirituality and I interviewed Cleopocalypse and Miss Penetration. And I remember that was really random one weekend. I was just like, Hey, like, come over to my house. We're going to record you. We're going to do this thing. I don't even know why. Maybe we'll edit it. We'll like, we never did. That was 2014, I think. And I never picked it up again until like three or four years, three years ago, I think, or whatever. 
But yeah, like once I got to San Francisco, I was able to kind of uh, open up even more, I guess, you know, I was in a little bit more queer space. Um, In some ways, Chicago wasn't quite queer enough for me. There was still kind of Midwestern. It was a great transition from like Idaho, but there was just something more that I was hoping to experience. And I was able to get to San Francisco. I got involved in the recovery community. I had a friend of mine who had passed a suicide and he was a beautiful drag queen. And I'd always said, oh, I'll do that. I actually tried it when I was in like, when I was 19 or 20, I did drag a little bit, but I had a lot of internalized transphobia and homophobia and all that stuff happening at that time. And I couldn't handle being in drag. It was just too much for my psyche. Like I was one of those gay guys that was like, don't call me girl. Like I am not a girl. I am a dude who fucks dudes. Don't call me she, you know? And like, now I'm a trans girl. Right. But like, that was my own internalized stuff. So I was in a position in my life where I couldn't hold that. Like I couldn't handle that sort of layer of myself, if you will. And so, um, now that I, you know, had a few years of sobriety under my belt and I was in this sober environment and I had been just sparked from my friend passing and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do drag. And so like in two weeks, I was like on the stage doing drag and it actually really kind of opened me up to my trans identity. I had a really hard and difficult time with it. It was, I was really vulnerable and I was really challenged by it in ways that I was super scared about it in ways that all the other people on the stage I was like they weren't experiencing it in a similar way I was and I couldn't quite understand and they were always talking about how at the end of the night they couldn't wait to get out of the drag and I never wanted to get out you know like I I don't know like it was just it was something I was really enjoying and I was it was something that I don't know I just continued to kind of lean into and then my transness just kind of has come out of that I can relate to it a little in my own way that when I started identifying as bi and dating women, that was the first time that I questioned my gender, Mm -hmm. but didn't know what to do with because it was like, who am I supposed to be in this? And I was always so much bigger than the, uh, the, the women that I was dating that I felt more masculine, but was uncomfortable with feeling masculine. And then flash forward to kink and getting to put stuff on in a scene and then take it off that started allowing me to explore things in a way that felt safe. And then when I started pro-doming, I I didn't feel comfortable being somebody's mistress. And so I started having my clients call me sir. Mm -hmm. And that allowed this fullness of expression that I could, I could be sir and be feminine and I could be sir and be in charge or like it would encompass all of me. And that's Mm -hmm. when I started being more comfortable identifying as non-binary the gender expansiveness yeah 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 mm-hmm. and kind of just being more integrated it's like why not yeah. if I can be this over here and this over there it's like like for me like I want to bring all of who I am wherever I am mm-hmm. if I don't share a part of you with me uh, like you in this situation it's because I'm choosing to not because I'm afraid to not because I you know what I mean like it's just yeah, a choice yeah. and so yeah, integration, just integration and becoming more and more integrated is, is so much important to me. And I think when I hold all of who I am and I express all of who I am to wherever I'm at that day, you know, like the trans is the closest thing to mm. the word that we have mm. in our understanding today on how I see myself in the world, I guess, you know? So I'm curious on like what, what has doing drag and em- embracing your transness done to your relationship with the divine? Well, it's, I believe it's a direct result 
of mm-hmm. my connection with the divine. So I would say my continue seeking and reaching better and bigger understanding of God and my purpose and my connection with it and my connection to you. And that creates space for me to pull more of me out. You know, I've just been able to, you know, with the help of God, excavate my spirit and put it on my outside, you know, like share it with people. Um, And it's a direct result. So I say that my transness is a spiritual experience. I, if I wasn't seeking God or some sort of spiritual connection, I wouldn't be able to call myself Bonnie Violet and I wouldn't be asking you to do the same. So it's, I know for some people, it seems like I constantly get people to say, there's no God in you. Uh, I'm like, actually, I am a direct result of God being in me, of me knowing that God is in me. God's already there. <laughs> like, and that's a lot of the work that I try to do with people is help people insert their spirituality, their beliefs, their understandings of God in their now and see it in the past. Because when you can see it when it wasn't there before, you, it, it helps you. One, it reminds you of your resilience to go back and be like, oh my gosh, yeah, this stuff, I've been through this stuff I went through. This, yeah, when I got raped, when I got assaulted, when I, all these sorts of things, like, yeah, that happened. And if I can start to see some sort of, sees my understanding of God or spirituality or whatever in my now, then, then it changes that, right? It changes my narrative. And then what it does for me now well, it also builds my faith because I start to see over and over and over and over. And then what it does now, when I'm in a moment again, when I don't see it at play, when I don't understand how or why things are the way they are, I can hope that it's still here and it's still around and I'm just not able to connect to it, right? And in that hope or in that realization, there it is. And so that's a lot of why I like, you know, I try to help people lace their narrative with the spiritual thread and interviewing people is a great way to do that. So I do a lot of that with drag artists and trans folks to, again, try to lace their narrative um, with the spiritual thread. You were talking about how your idea of desire has changed since you started hormones. And mm-hmm. did you have anything else to say about that? Like- the, the only thing with that, I wouldn't say it's like, I don't want to just attribute it to the hormones itself. I think I also yeah. had come to a place for myself in which I was, see, I wanted something different. I have had a very off and on relationship with sex and my sexual behavior. You know, like there was that time that I was a little bit more sexually liberated. Just before I got to San Francisco, I was going through this moment where I had desires for really rough sex, really, really rough sex. And I was putting myself in very dangerous situations. And I, I, couldn't, I was judging the heck out of myself. I didn't understand. Again, it kind of felt like those like demonic behaviors or those, you know, those things that were outside of me. And I used to fight it and shame myself. And then once I could finally get curious and just be like, okay, what is this? Like, what is this doing for you? Like why, you know, what, instead of like judging it or labeling or whatever, it's like, okay, okay, girl, like, what is this? What's going on? You know, and going through that process. Cause I think there was a time, I don't know. I thought it was harming, like, I don't know. It's like a long story, but I thought it was like me self-harming. Like it was me letting other people harm me because I wasn't able to do it for myself. And I think there was a bit of that because I was not living in my body. And so I think they helped me get into my body. And now that I'm living in my body as a trans person and have a relationship with my body that I've never had, I don't have a desire. Or I don't have a need or I don't, 
you know, I don't need that from somebody else in those ways. And so I think that's part of what's changing for me too. It's just like the things that I, I want, the things that I desire, the needs or the, um, I really, I'm really big on desire right now. Like I really want to be okay that I have desires and to meet those desires because I think especially as an addict or whatever, you know, kind of taught that desire is bad or desire can go sideways. And of course it can, but um, in doing that, I just got rid of desire altogether. And so then I, I believed, oh, I have no desire for romantic relationships. I have no desire for all these sorts of things. It was all just crap. I did have the desires, but I wasn't allowing myself to just be honest with myself about it. And so that's something I'm really big on right now is just like this idea of what is it that I'm desire and allow that to be a desire and something that is okay for me to find a thing to meet that desire. I think I'd always lived in a point where I don't need much. And I think part of that is growing up in poverty and everything else. And I just tell myself I don't need it. And then that way I won't feel like I'm missing something if I don't get it. And I'm learning to just say, no, this is what I want. And if I get it cute. If I don't, maybe that's sad, but I'm not going to stop maybe wanting it uh, just because I don't think I can get it. Well, I'm curious too, like you, it seemed like in Chicago, you went through this time where you were, you were getting needs met, but it, are you just exploring different desires now? Hmm. I would say right now is I'm, I'm open, you know, okay. I'm not, yeah. I'm not seeking, I'm not setting it up. I've really been, um, but like, I have a desire and an openness to, to be sexual with anybody who wants to be in that I feel so, you know, like I don't identify as gay anymore or bi, like I'm pansexual. I'm open to whatever might happen as an expression of being in community or in connection with someone. And so it hasn't been my experience, but it is a desire and it is an openness that I have um, that I haven't had before, you know, um, and so I think that's something different too, whereas they'll go, oh, well, this is my behavior in the past. So this is whatever. And it's like, actually, I'm open to, to any of those sorts of things. So go ahead. What it sounds like is that there's a difference between like operating almost mindlessly out of getting one's needs met and then being open to desire as a, as a form of curiosity mm-hmm. and expansiveness, right? Yeah. And I think yeah. for me, it's part of meeting maybe more of those emotional, intellectual spiritual parts of my sexuality. Whereas um, more recently, it was more kind of maybe about the mind and the body. Whereas now I'm really wanting to have, again, more of an integrated experience with all that. And so I think in a lot of ways, I've just been prepping myself, you know, I, even in the idea of starting to transition, I was really nervous about it, because I was kind of like, well, who's going to love you? How are you going to because I'm socialized completely different. It's different to go from like a queer a queer man into being like a trans woman, them beautiful creature. You just socialize different and the way that you are in the community just changes and it changes really drastically. And so a lot of that is just continuing to try to find my place and not lose me and not become what is around me. And so that's something that I've really been trying to, with the help of God, is stay with me enough to, to do me, to feel me, express me, and, and not to let, let myself be too influenced by um, things that aren't going to bring out the best in me. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. What has surprised you about how you've learned that God has shaped Bonnie Violet? 
What, what has been surprising in that? I think the biggest thing is just that, I, that I've been here all along. It's like, I remember when I went to talk to the doctor about getting on hormones, I was really nervous because I was like, oh, she's not going to think I'm trans enough, or she's not going to think I'm really trans, or she's going to like, whatever. And um, when I met with her and I was like, I was like, oh my God, like it started when I was like little and all that time, I can't remember, you know what I mean? It's like, no, like this, this has been here my whole life. And, um, and she had no, she was like, oh yeah. You know, and most of the people in my life were like, oh yeah. You know, so I think if the big thing is, is like, I think a lot of things is like, we already know what we know. You know, there's a knowing that I think is placed in all of us. And uh, the world tells us is something different. It's like somehow we forget it or somehow we lose that connection to it. And I think for me, it's just been the longer I'm living, the longer I'm going, the more I'm exploring, the just the closer to that knowing I get. And in that, that knowing of even the unknown is what comes from that. And, and like everything else from that is just like, you know, it's good. Yeah. Where are you at now? You're still on this journey that you were talking mm-hmm. about. How would you describe the journey now? Um, how would I describe the journey? Well, I've had moments in my life where I, I've just not been integrated. I've focused, like, say, like, my sexuality. I was like, I was getting all the getting all the stuff, you know, sexually. And, and maybe not, uh, you know, and sometimes that comes at other parts of self not being cared for or uh, spending time with or whatever. And so I've been really trying to get into a space in my life where I want to hold vocation. I'm calling it vocation instead of like employment or job, because I'm really trying to get away from that mindset, but like purpose, what I do for a living and what I do for giving life, you know, like that sort of thinking. And then also relational. Oftentimes I'm really good at the working, the doing, and not as good as in relation. And so that's a lot of what I'm trying to do is hold relations deeper and different leveled intimacies and also be successful in, you know, the vocation and the doing. And so that's really a lot of where I'm at is, is working on doing that all at once. Yeah, that is a lot. It feels like something always slips, doesn't it? And we have the same things that we often let slip. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I feel like that has been my experience right now. I'm not, I don't think that's where I'm at right now, but I think I was in that in that pattern and in that space, you know, when the shelter in place happened, it was really great for me because it just kind of like smacked me. It was like, girl, so when are you going to do it? Like, when are you going to do these things you've been talking about? You've been talking about doing more queer ministry, like on the regular, you know, trying to do it on the outside of my 40 hour week job. And, you know, like, it's just not possible. So it was like, I just had to start making some decisions to be like, no, this is what I know this is what's important to me. And I'm, if everything isn't in alignment with that, then I'm not going to do it. And so I've had to really just kind of, uh, and it's been a lot easier than I thought it would be. I, I just had yeah. to, to do it, you know? I think I remember seeing a post where you, you quit your full-time job, right? Not knowing yep. what was going to come next. Yep. I had just a little bit of money and I was making the best money I've ever made in my life. I was working mm-hmm. in, at UCSF in cancer research, like in a lot of ways, this little like white trash kid, you know, with a high school diploma, (laughs) like landed herself in a job in a place like that was like, wow, I, you know, and then it was like, no, I don't even want to be here. (laughs) 
<laughs> you know? And uh, so, yeah, leaving that um, was a difficult, but also very easy decision. Depression was really bad. I just was not well in a lot of ways. And me letting go of my job was just one step in reaching toward healing. So I want to ask about, I think for many of us, I think a lot of people, queer folks in general, or folks who have experienced similar forms of identity trauma will have this experience of of not knowing how to trust in the divine because the divine has been this, this abusive force, or at least presented as such. And that's what comes up for me anyway, as I'm continuing my own journey of like, well, what do I have faith in now? Now that my idea of God has changed so dramatically, what am I allowed to trust in, you know? And so I'm yeah. curious in this moment, like, how did you, how do you feel like you got there? And what, what does faith and trust look like for you now? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think the big thing, one of the big things that's different for me right now too, is that I have faith and trust in myself. And I don't think that's something that I had most of my life, you know, and in the beginning with God, with all of that, you know, I had a desperation. I needed God. I needed her, it, whatever to like deal with me because I was too much. Right. Like, and I didn't know how to do it. And, you know, thankfully, (laughs) you know, that helped me for a minute. And that ended up being a good tool, if you will. To getting connected with God. But now I have a relationship in which I have a desire to have a relationship with God, which in some ways is still a need, but it's not a desperate need in the sense. In some ways there still is because it's just the better option. It's just like, I know that um, having some sort of spiritual life or uh, expression or reaching to um, increases my capacity to have a much fuller joyful, happy um, life, uh, integrated life. Um, and so it only makes sense that, that those would be decisions that I would continue to make, you know? And yeah, I think that's where I'm at with that. <laughs> no, I love that answer. I'm going to be thinking about that. What kinds of queer ministries are you offering right now? Who should reach out and why? Yeah, I mean, I, I've been really wanting to do more of being able to actually speak to people and talk more one-on-one with folks, or I'd love to do workshops or guest preach at a church or speak at a gay and lesbian center or, you know, any of those sorts of things. Cause I do feel like I do have, I'm at a point in my life now where I'm not like, well, who the hell are you? I, I have something to say, Got, you know, I have this, I have an experience that I think is important for me to share for my, for me but also because of how God works and how my belief system works, it actually can maybe even help other people. And so not all people and not everyone, but there's just an element of me trying to do that because I also need to change my narrative a little bit and I need to come and understand myself a little bit more. And I need to be able to see a bigger God because, and a bigger understanding because eventually what I know falls short. And then I feel like God let me down or I feel, and that's not the case. It's just, I don't get it. And I need to continue to have more conversations or to pull more out of myself in order to come to a more expansive understanding in which I can, then things make a little bit more sense to me. And I feel a little bit more comfortable about being in the world and about the future. And so for me, being getting the opportunity to meet more people and to talk more people, it just blows, you know, it just expands. So I have such a desire myself. To, to expand my own understanding, that that's a big drive for me. So I'd love to do workshops and one-on-one stuff, but also um, I just love interviewing. I think interviewing folks is really helpful. And for people to watch those interviews, 
for a long time, I never found who I was because I didn't know I could be different. You know, I didn't know that I could be who I am today. Um, I didn't know there were queer folks. I didn't know there were trans folks. I didn't know there were non-binary trans folks or, you know, things like that. And the more I was able to hear other people's stories and see other people, the more I could begin to see myself and see where I could go. And it eventually gave me permission to explore. And so I want to try to create an opportunity for for others potentially to see themselves so they can liberate themselves and begin to hopefully have an experience with their life in a way that I'm having and continuing to seek today. Yeah, I love that. Well, I'm excited to see where this goes five years from now. Right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. If you have feedback or you'd like to be a guest, or you have someone that you think I should talk to, please reach out at jarrah at jarrahbrown.com, or you can follow me at thejarrahbrown on Twitter and Instagram.